Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. This article is from The National. Date 27th June 2022. From the Politics section. Northern Ireland Protocol. MPs to have say on Boris Johnson's plan by Angus Cochran. Parliament is set to have its say on new legislation which would give Tory ministers powers to override parts of the post-Brexit deal on Northern Ireland. Boris Johnson's administration argues the measures to remove checks on goods and animal and plant products travelling from Great Britain to Northern Ireland are necessary to safeguard the Good Friday Agreement and peace and stability, while the EU has branded the move both illegal and unrealistic. Unionist opposition to the imposition of checks, which they perceive as driving a wedge down the Irish Sea, has seen the Democratic Unionist Party, DUP, refuse to return to the power-sharing executive, leaving the region without a functioning government. The UK has insisted that its unilateral approach is the only option left to resolve the issues baked into the protocol if the EU maintains its refusal fundamentally to rewrite the terms of the deal. But the move has sparked a fierce backlash from the bloc, with fresh legal action launched against Britain last week. Nicola Sturgeon has warned the move risks a hugely damaging self-inflicted trade war in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis. The First Minister added that the move may very well break international law. European Commission Vice President Markus Sefcovic indicated further measures could follow if the UK pressed ahead with the bill. The dispute could ultimately lead to a trade war with tariffs or even the suspension of the entire Brexit deal between the UK and the EU. The Prime Minister played down concerns over legal challenges during a trip to Rwanda earlier this week. We've got a legal case against us for failing to have proper customs procedures, all sorts of things, he said. As the bill returns to Parliament for its second reading on Monday, MPs will debate its main principles and decide whether it can proceed for further consideration. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss will tell the Commons the legislation is a basis for a durable and sustainable solution that protects the Good Friday Agreement, avoids a hard border, safeguards the EU single market and ensures the integrity of the UK. However, she is likely to be met with a fierce backlash. Keir Starmer, Sir Keir Starmer, had said Labour would axe the proposed laws if it was in power and confirmed his party will vote against the legislation at Westminster. Sefcovic previously declined to rule out a trade war, saying we have to keep all options on the table. But 
he emphasised the EU's preference to find a negotiated solution to the problems caused by the protocol, lamenting the radio silence from London since February. On Sunday, Northern Ireland Secretary Brandon Lewis suggested it was absurd for Europe to issue warnings about a trade war with the UK when they had not fully implemented sanctions on Putin for invading Ukraine. What we're talking about is fixing here some of the issues in terms of the implementation of the protocol that is so detrimentally affecting Northern Ireland, he told Times Radio. The EU's ambassador to the UK, Yao Valley del Almia, said the government is likely on our road to nowhere. Speaking to Sky's Sophie Ridge on Sunday about the bill, he said, We are not dismissing what the UK has proposed, but we read it very carefully and to be very frank, we think it is both illegal and unrealistic. Alongside the second reading, the government is launching a series of structured engagements with the business community to discuss and gather views on the bill's implementation. The Foreign Office is hosting the first roundtable event on Monday, bringing together more than a dozen major UK businesses and representative groups, including the Northern Ireland Chamber of Commerce, ASDA, John Lewis and the Dairy Council Northern Ireland. Truss said, Our overriding priority is protecting the Belfast Good Friday Agreement the bedrock of peace and stability in Northern Ireland. As it stands, the protocol is undermining this delicate balance. This legislation will fix the problems the protocol has created, ensuring that goods can flow freely within the UK, while avoiding a hard border and safeguarding the EU single market. A negotiated solution has been and remains our preference but the EU continues to rule out the changing of the protocol itself, even though it is patently causing serious problems in Northern Ireland, which therefore means we are obliged to act. That article was by Angus Cochran. This article is from The National, date 27th June 2022, from the Culture section. Scammers said to be preparing to target millions as travel pressures intensify. By Jane McLeod. Scots have been warned to be vigilant as online scammers prepare to target millions of people, according to a report by police, security and banking experts. Fraudsters are focusing on holidays, tickets for major sporting and music events, using unsolicited emails to catch out web users, according to Police Scotland, the Scottish Business Resilience Centre and the Royal Bank of Scotland. The three organisations have released a new advice guide called The Little Book of Big Scams to help Scots avoid being hit by the latest swindles. It warns about the 19 common scams to look out for and gives Scots practical guidance on how to spot them and what to do if you or know or someone you know falls victim to one. It comes as online fraud and scams in Scotland soar, with an increase of 69% since 2011-12, statistics from the Scottish Government show. Assistant Chief Constable Gary Ritchie of Police Scotland said, New scams are constantly emerging, so it is no wonder that we see businesses and individuals fall into a trap. 
Prevention and education are key. So this guide is packed full of practical advice. The impact can be emotional as well as financial. So I urge everyone to download and share the guide with family and friends so they know what to do and who to call on if they become a victim of fraud this summer. The top three scams come as people look to book breaks away or events following the coronavirus lockdowns. Online scammers are exploiting the summer pressures facing the travel industry, coupled with the desire for Scots to seek a sunshine break. The advice book will help people recognise how to spot offers that are too good to be true and avoid travel services that do not exist, experts said. The guide also urges those seeking tickets to sports and music events to buy from official promoters as swindlers look to capitalise on a range of big events over the summer months. Judy McCrory, Chief Executive of the SBRC, said The travel and tourism sectors are still recovering from the pandemic, evidenced by what we have seen recently with delays and cancellations due to staffing issues. Scammers seek to take advantage of would-be travellers who have been left high and dry and are seeking fast solutions. This guide gives people the tools to tackle these scammers head-on and so lead to fewer fraud victims. The guide, available to download on the SBRC website, also covers online and cash point fraud, door-to-door scams and romance and dating fraud. That article was by Jane McLeod. This article is from The National, date 27th June 2022, from the News section. Scottish Bally Scheme aims to help care home residents. By Lucy Scarlett. Scottish Bally is teaming up with the NHS and a care home group to improve the health of residents through films and audio. The Bally organisation will be piloting the SB Duet scheme in care homes in the Inverclyde Health and Social Care Partnership, working in a partnership with NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde and Clyde Care Home Collaborative. SB Duet was developed to support the well-being of people with reduced mobility by offering a more accessible movement experience guided by film. The scheme uses two 10-minute films and audio resources which feature a short excerpt of Scottish Ballet performance footage followed by five minutes of gentle guided movement. This can be done safely in bed or at the bedside with a carer, family member or independently. The SCHC is a new service dedicated to supporting staff, residents and families to enhance the quality of care in homes. It is based on the principles of bringing together all those involved in providing health and social care services to work towards a shared goal. The work of the collaborative will be guided by feedback from care home residents, families and staff. Lisa Sinclair, Senior Dance Health Manager at Scottish Ballet, said... Scottish Ballet is delighted to be working with the Care Home Collaborative to bring SB Duet to care homes across NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde. Our priority is to ensure that the resources are accessible, empower as many people as possible to feel connected, creative and to take part in something that matters to them. 
dance and movement have been shown to improve fitness, cognitive function and the quality of life in care home residents. Scottish Ballet ran online neurological programmes during lockdown with people joining from their beds all across Scotland. SB Duet will be made available in a range of accessible formats including BSL, captioned, audio description and can be translated into other languages. The resource will be piloted in three care homes in Inverclyde and an external evaluation will be completed by researcher Emily Davis of the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. That article was by Lucy Scarlett. This article is from The National, date 27th June 2022, from the News section. Scottish Government gives local councils power to run their own bus services. By Jane MacLeod. Local authorities have been given the power to run their own bus services, the Scottish Government has confirmed. Transport Minister Jenny Gilroth said the new powers secured through the Transport Scotland Act would be able to revitalise bus services to suit local communities. Section 34 of the Act gives local transport authorities power to run local bus services in a way they see fit. It was previously prohibited to do so under the Transport Act 1985, but Gilroth said the update will give councils the flexibility they had been asking for. Councils will not have to run services themselves and can instead opt for a partnership or franchise approach. Gilroth said the Act was designed to help make Scotland's transport network cleaner, smarter and more accessible than ever before. By giving local authorities the flexible tools they need to respond to their own transport challenges, we can deliver a more responsive and sustainable transport system for everyone in Scotland. I recognise that not every local authority will want to run their own bus services. What's key is that local authorities will soon have greater tools at their disposal to revitalise bus services where required. By investing over half a billion pounds in long-term funding for bus priority infrastructure, coupled with the rollout of free bus travel to under-22s and significant investment to encourage a shift to zero-emission buses, we're responding to the climate emergency by placing buses at the front of our just transition to a net-zero society. That article was by Jane MacLeod. This article is from The National, date 27th June 2022, from the Politics section. Tory spin machine is buckling under the pressure, by Kirsty Strickland. The results of the Wakefield and Tiverton and Honiton by-elections last week were so disastrous for the Conservative Party that they managed to break the usually reliable spin machine. No amount of expectation management in advance could help Boris Johnson save face. In the aftermath, we heard deluded nonsense from Johnson loyalists that these losses were merely a result of mid-term blues. In Tiverton and Honiton, the Lib Dems managed to overturn a huge Tory majority to win the seat. In his victory speech, the new Lib Dem MP Richard Ford said, 
Tonight, the people of Tiverton and Honiston have spoken for Britain. They've sent a loud and clear message. It's time for Boris Johnson to go and go now. In a move that heaped more pressure on the wounded Prime Minister, Conservative Party co-chair Oliver Dowden resigned, pointedly telling Johnson, we cannot carry on with business as usual. At this point, the Conservative Party looks like a burning building. As the flames engulf it, Johnson sits drinking wine at the kitchen table, surrounded by cans of petrol. Nadine Doris massages his shoulders and assures him that it's not his fault and she will stay with him until the end. It's mesmerising in a way to see a group of people so comfortable with humiliating themselves in defence of one man. When Johnson is eventually dragged out of Downing Street, either by his party or by the electorate, he should consider a, chain, a career as a cult leader. He already has a healthy pool of devoted followers to kick things off with. Johnson responded to the by-election losses in a way that was true to form. Initially, he seemed to accept at least some personal responsibility for the results, saying that voters were absolutely fed up hearing about things I stuffed up. Cue much excitement as the media class worked itself into a state of frenzy that the narcissist-in-chief had finally acknowledged that he might have made some mistakes. Of course, it didn't last long. In another interview, he insisted he wouldn't change and that anyone hoping for him to undergo a psychological transformation would be disappointed. Then, Yesterday's papers led on reports that Johnson is actively considering a third term in office. Some senior Tories criticised the Prime Minister for his delusional statement as reports intensified about plans to remove him. Under the rules of the Backbench 1922 Committee, he technically should be safe from a challenge for another year. But those rules can be changed at any time or the Cabinet could intervene and make it clear to Johnson that it's time to go. Neither of those things seem likely in the short term at least, as the party remains paralysed by indecision and MPs seem content to warm their hands by the inferno of Johnson's creation. It wouldn't be a bad week for the Conservative Party without some idiot MP giving an anonymous quote to a journalist to make it even worse. These lads don't realise that when they open their mouths to defend their man, they help expose the rot that he presides over. One MP told the I newspaper that Neil Parrish shouldn't have stepped down after being caught watching porn in the House of Commons in full view of his colleagues. They said Parrish shouldn't have resigned. He should have just gone away with his wife for a few weeks and then come back to the job. I don't know why the girls had to speak out like that. The fact that this unnamed MP refers to these, their female colleagues as girls tells you everything you need to know. He wasn't the only one who blamed the woman who made complaints for the by-election loss. Another said those who reported the MP should feel like a turd in a swimming pool. It seems like Johnson isn't the only one who should be in line for an urgent psychological transformation. 
It requires a breathtaking commitment to misogyny to ignore the misdeeds of both Parrish and Johnson and instead blame the woman who felt uncomfortable at a man watching explicit material while in their company at work. Yesterday, Douglas Ross faced a bruising interview where he was quizzed on the ongoing Boris problem. After flip-flopping on the issue, he has reverted to his original position and now says he doesn't have confidence in Johnson. Asked about whether the Prime Minister is now safe, he pointed out that Theresa May won her no-confidence vote more convincingly than Boris Johnson did, but resigned a few months later. It's not a situation where it's done and dusted and everyone moves on, Ross told The Sunday Show. Those close to the Prime Minister will have to consider what is best for the country. The problem for Douglas Ross and his colleagues is that the handling of the Partygate and its associated scandals has been so woeful that we're long past the point where voters are willing to write off Boris Johnson as a bad apple. They've let him fester so long that he's spoiled the whole barrel. The best thing for the country would be to throw out the lot of them. That article was by Kirsty Strickland. From the National, Monday the 27th of June 2022. From the comment section, Scotland needs urgent investment in criminal defence to uphold human rights. By Rannan Spear. I have been an SNP member for more than a decade and, with the prospects of another independence referendum on the horizon, it is imperative we get the next year right. There has been a lot of discussion about change strikes over the last week, but do you know criminal defence solicitors have been taking industrial action for more than nine months in Scotland? We are regularly seeing our SNP elected members up in arms about the UK government's Bill of Rights, which fundamentally reduces and takes away our human rights. There is something we should all be taking incredibly seriously. As Professor Leslie Thomas QC said, it is totalitarianism in broad daylight. Our human rights are essential to protecting standards of living in a modern functioning democracy and will be ever more important as the cost of living crisis plunges even more people into poverty. However, in order to ensure that our human rights are upheld, it is imperative that anyone who needs access to a lawyer has it. Article 6 of the European Convention on Human Rights ECHR, states that to uphold the right to a fair trial, there must be adequate time and facilities to prepare a person's defence. This is just no longer possible in Scotland after years of cuts and refusal to invest in the pillars of justice. There has been a great deal of talk recently about the imminent collapse of criminal defence in Scotland. Lindsay Barber took the decision to leave the profession and documented why in a video on YouTube. I want to say this was an extraordinary move, but it wasn't. People are leaving left, right and centre for all the reasons Lindsay stated. It is important that we speak out about this situation honestly. This is entirely the responsibility of the Scottish Government. It is a devolved issue. We have a Minister and Dura Minister with a portfolio directly responsible for the justice system in Scotland and they are failing woefully. The Scottish Government has, year on year, on year, cut the legal aid budget, which ensures that those who cannot afford it will still get access to justice, therefore further widening inequality. The pandemic savaged the courts and judicial system as we begin to emerge from the pandemic 
there is need for investment in reparative work. Instead, Keith Brown is sticking his head in the sand. He is nowhere to be seen. Senior reporters from STV are receiving no reply to the request for interview, with not even a hint of a statement to appease the criticism. Those he represents are crying out for reassurance, and he hasn't even acknowledged the problem. Brown is tweeting and talking about the UK's Bill of Rights and the Nationality and Borders Act, but he isn't talking about the doubling of the number of people currently held in custody on remand awaiting trial compared to pre-pandemic figures, damningly now considered to be the longest periods in Europe. He isn't talking about protecting justice for those that need it in Scotland. Firms across the country are making a decision to stop taking on complex cases on legal aid because they no longer have the resources available to them to prepare a proper defence. This cannot be underestimated. It means people in Scotland in 2022 have no recourse to justice, have no route to representation. While we are having national conversations about better support for those with addiction and mental health problems, when these same people enter the judicial system they are forgotten. They are subjected to cycles of criminalisation without proper representation or defence. The Scottish Government has led the way with new legislation to protect victims of domestic abuse and sexual violence and has explained definitions to reflect coercive control, acknowledging the reality of abuse is not just physical. However, without proper funding in place for defence, there's no trial. With defence lawyers in short supply, trials are being postponed with no justice for anyone and a continued cycle of re-traumatising those involved at the expense of the public purse. The economics of this doesn't work or make sense. Holding people in custody, awaiting trial for longer than necessary, is a threat to their human rights, but it's also really expensive, as it's repeatedly calling cases only for them to be knocked out on due to a lack of resources. It costs money and further wastes a clogged up court's time. We currently need a Justice Secretary to be present, engaging and ready to solve the challenges that the judicial system in Scotland faces. The solutions are there, but the justice sector needs a minister who will come to the table and acknowledge the grave situation we are in. It's time for Keith Brown to decide whether he's ready to come to the table or stand aside and let someone else step in. And that was a comment piece by Rhiannon Spear. From the National, Tuesday the 28th of June 2022, in the news section, Better Together Advisor admits UK must change but says Indiref 2 should not happen. By Steph Braun, multimedia political journalist. A former Better Together campaign advisor has insisted the UK needs to change, but Scotland should not get a second independence referendum. Jim Gallagher said in a BBC interview on Tuesday that people in England and Scotland want to see the same transformation in the UK and Scots could lead on that. But he continued to insist people north of the border did not want the referendum Nicola Sturgeon is offering, even in the wake of Brexit, which he said was a bad mistake. Appearing on the Good Morning Scotland show alongside former Yes Scotland chief executive Blair Jenkins, Gallagher argued what Scots would prefer is to find a way to get a better Scotland in a better Britain. He said, I don't think it's a question of England and Scotland being different politically. When you look at Scottish opinion and English opinion, 
there are people all across England whose view about the change that we need in the UK is exactly the same as the people in Scotland. People in the north of England, people in the cities, people in Newcastle view London government exactly as people in Scotland do. The UK is going to have to change, and Scotland can be part of that change, maybe even lead it. What the Scottish people actually want is to find a a way to get a better Scotland and a better Britain. They prefer a way of doing that to an independence referendum. Sturgeon is set to make an announcement about that route map to Indiref 2 in Holyrood at around 2.20pm on Tuesday. The UK government has consistently said it will not allow a second vote, so the Scottish government is having to look at other possible ways a legal referendum could be held. The vote in 2014 was held because of Westminster granted a Section 30 order, handing over referendum powers to Holyrood, but it is not anticipated this will happen this time around, given Boris Johnson's repeated claims that now is not the time. Given that the majority of Scots did not vote for Brexit, the argument that the Scottish Government is making is that there should have been a fundamental change of circumstances since the last poll in 2014, so people should be given another chance to have their say on independence. Gallagher said he did not agree with, but insisted that the decision should not be made over Scotland's future, purely in reaction, reaction to Johnson's rocky premiership. He said, Brexit is a big thing and, in my view, it's a bad mistake. Sadly, we've got Brexit. I think that's what's going to happen over time. We will rebuild a relationship with Europe, though not under the present government. But remember, the present Prime Minister is in a sugary peg at the moment. I don't think we should make a decision about Scotland's future in reaction to Boris Johnson. Jenkins said it would be a huge mistake for the UK government to obstruct democracy in Scotland. He said he hopes the spotlight in Wednesday's announcement will remain on the fact that the Scottish Government has a democratic mandate to hold a vote, given the SNP won last year's election on a manifesto of holding one by a landslide. Jenkins said, I hope the focus remains very firmly on there's a clear democratic mandate for this. If the UK is serious about feeling being a functioning democracy, then there must be another referendum. The mandate is unchallengeable. The spotlight has to remain firmly on Boris Johnson and UK government. Are they Democrats or are they not? It would be a huge mistake for the UK government to obstruct democracy in Scotland. And that was an article by Steph Braun. From The National Tuesday the 28th of June 2022 From the news section Boris Johnson's stance on independence Kafka-esque, ex-UK government official says. Report by Angus Cochran. The UK government's approach to Scottish independence is Kafka-esque, according to a former constitutional advisor who helped draw up the Edinburgh Agreement. On the day Nicola Sturgeon unveils her route map to a second independence referendum, Professor Chirin Martin warned Westminster that its refusal to countenance another ballot could backfire. The former Cabinet Office Constitutional Director and a current Oxford University academic said any High Court victory for Boris Johnson over Indiref 2 could prove to be pyrrhic if it is shown there is a legal, legally no union of equals. He also dubbed the UK's government's stance in the Constitution highly unsatisfactory, but said it left Holyrood ministers short on options to achieve independence. Speaking to BBC Good Morning Scotland, GMS, 
Martin gave his thoughts on a potential court battle if the UK government continues to refuse a Section 30 order, which allowed for a legally watertight referendum in 2014. He explained, If the UK government wins, it might be something of a pyrrhic victory, and that the court won't rule it that it's too soon since the last referendum. That's not a point of law. It won't rule that the Scottish people, via opinion poll, say they're not interested in having a referendum. That's not a point of law. What it's likely to rule, and it will depend on the wording, is that really the United Kingdom is a country that Scotland has no automatic right as a nation within it to leave unless the UK government says it can. So this idea of a union of equals actually has no standing in law, and that can be very difficult for the UK government, even if it wins. If Westminster were to lose the court case, Martin warns there could be the sense the UK government has gone to court to overturn a democratic mandate. He added, So I think there are risks. However, the UK government is clearly taking the view that it's less risky than allowing a referendum on which it would be committed to act if there was a yes vote. The former UK government official argued if Westminster refused to agree to a vote during this parliamentary term, it should set it when it believes another vote would be appropriate. That is my view, but it's not their view. I think we're in a slightly Kafkaesque constitutional position at the moment. That independence question dominates Scottish politics, and people may tell opinion posters that they don't want another referendum. But when the election came last year, there were plenty of options to vote for parties that didn't want a referendum, and I don't think we should blame or be critical of the SNP for pursuing a referendum. Martin continued, The Westminster government position essentially appears to be, you know, come back in 17 years or so. I'm not sure how sustainable it is to maintain a narrative that whilst the independence question dominates Scottish politics, while Scotland has a right, in principle, to become independent, there is nothing, going to be no discussions as to how, the, how and when that will be tested indefinitely, regardless of the results of Scottish elections. He deemed it to be a highly unsatisfactory situation, adding, I do think the Westminster government will have to move at some point, or indeed should think about moving at some point. Martin went on to address the possibility of unionists potentially boycotting a second independence referendum if it is held without Westminster's consent. He said a plebiscite is not a necessary step, pointing out that other countries have gained their independence through parliamentary elections, for instance. The constitution expert continued, So the point is, is the government of the United Kingdom willing to contemplate a process that might lead to independence? And, at the moment, the answer to that is no. And for as long as that's the case, there isn't much the Scottish government can do. It can protest, it can win elections, it can try and find ways of testing opinion via referendum, whether unionist parties participate in that or not. The critical point is, will the UK government pledge to act on the outcome of that referendum? And for as long as the answer to that question is no, there's no way of achieving independence through negotiation, through any sort of peaceful orderly transition to a new Scottish state, which is what the Scottish government wants. So I think the boycott question is slightly irrelevant. The First Minister is setting out her route map to a second independence referendum on Tuesday. The Scottish government has said it intends to hold a vote in October 2023. However, Boris Johnson has repeatedly ter- ruled out approving a Section 30 order, 
with Tory ministers suggesting another vote should not be held for decades. Polling expert Professor John Curtis explained that it would be unthinkable for the Scottish Government to not to pursue a second vote. He told GMS, It is inconceivable that Nicola Sturgeon is not going to attempt to try to hold the independence referendum given the character of the electorate voted for in May 2021 as it would have been for Boris Johnson not to have implemented Brexit, having gotten a majority in 2019 essentially off the back of those who had voted leave. Both Boris Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon are, in a sense, prisoners of the electorate that have got them into power. And while we're going to see po- and what we're going to see played out in the coming weeks and months are those two contradictory mandates and two contradictory coalitions essentially engaging in a game of cat and mouse about whether and how any possible referendum might be held. As for the outcome of a referendum, Curtis said it was too close to call. The honest answer to that question is we do not know what the outcome of any referendum will be. He pointed out that in recent opinion polls, on average the no side has been slightly ahead, but he explained that ever since in 2019 the polls have been rough, roughly evenly split, aside from a period in late 2020 and early 2021 when the yes side was further ahead. Given the public opinion is close to 50-50, frankly, it's a lottery at the moment as to which side will emerge victorious at another referendum. And that report was by Angus Cochrane. From The National, Tuesday the 28th of June 2022, from the politics section, Nicola Sturgeon says Will of Scots must prevail as she unveils Indiref 2 plan. By Laura Webster, News and Features Editor Scotland's democratic will must prevail, Nicola Sturgeon said, as she prepares to unveil her government's route map to a second independence referendum. Today the First Minister will present her plan for moving forward with Indiref 2, while Westminster continues to resist the effort. Boris Johnson has repeatedly ruled out approving a Section 30 order, the transfer of powers which allowed the 2014 vote to go ahead. Despite this, Sturgeon has pledged to hold a fresh vote in Scotland's place in the Union by 2023, with her Constitution Secretary Angus Robertson voting October as the month that the referendum could take place. It has been reported that Sturgeon is considering holding a consultative referendum, as opposed to a legally binding one, in a bid to circumvent potential legal issues. In a statement to Holyrood from 2.20pm, which will be live-streamed across the national social media accounts, Sturgeon will explain exactly how she intends to move away towards that vote without the UK government's cooperation. It marks the first follow-up statement to her first scene-setter publication, released earlier this month, comparing Scotland and the Union to other small countries around Europe and exploring the UK's enduring structural problems. The people of Scotland have elected a parliament committed to giving them a choice on independence, and so that democratic will must be respected, the First Minister said last night. In Scotland, it is the people who are and have always been sovereign, and it is the people's will which must prevail. That may be an inconvenient truth for our political opponents, but it's a simple and unavoidable truth nonetheless. Sturgeon added that the Tories repeatedly ruling out Indiref 2, will only weaken the government's standing within, with its own people and on the international stage. 
Bluntly, the UK government is in no position to lecture any other country about the need to respect democratic norms if it is intent on trying to thwart democracy at home, she said. And, because we live in a democracy where election results still matter, continued efforts to thwart the will of the people must, and will, fail. Members of the UK government have made their opposition to Indiref too clear, with House of Commons leader Mark Spencer telling MPs that another vote should not be held until 2039 at the earliest. The Prime Minister has suggested that the next vote shouldn't happen until much later than that, flagging up 2055 as a potential date. Meanwhile, Scottish Tory leader Douglas Ross, who's both an MSP and MP, has been referring to a vote held without UK consent as a pretend referendum. Appearing on the BBC at the weekend, he refused to engage with questions on independence and insisted an Indiref 2 not signed off by Westminster would be a waste of time. Last night, Sturgeon argued that these kind of arguments suggest that the UK is not a voluntary union and would have the opposite of the intended effect. The UK is either a partnership of consent or is not a partnership worthy of the name, she said. Westminster rule over Scotland cannot be based on anything other than a consented, voluntary partnership. It is time to give people the democratic choice they have voted for, and then, with independence, to build a more prosperous, fairer country in a true partnership of equals between Scotland and her friends in the rest of the UK. Commenting ahead of the First Minister's statement to Parliament today, Scottish Greens co-leader Lauren Slater said, Both the Scottish Green Party and the SNP committed in their respective election manifestos to holding a referendum in this parliamentary session. Our parties won more votes and more seats than the three unionist parties. The mandate to hold a referendum is crystal clear. The people will have their say. That mandate is fundamentally about democracy. The people of Scotland are sovereign. They alone get to decide how they are governed. It is my belief that with independence, we will build a fairer and greener Scotland. A Scotland that rejects the hostile environment, rejects climate catastrophe, and embraces an outward-looking approach to global affairs. I believe that when the people are given that choice next year, that's what they will vote for. And that was a piece by Laura Webster. Recorded from the National on the 28th of June 2022, from the Culture Section. Recorded by Amy. Renovation gives major boost to the birthplace of Scotland's flag by Ninian Wilson. Scotland's Flag Heritage Centre reopened on Tuesday following a £100,000 restoration to the building. The renovation is the first in a series of major improvements planned for the centre, which is housed in the 16th century Hepburn Ducat. This site is based in the East Lothian village of Athol Stainford, known as the birthplace of Scotland's flag as legend has it that a white saltire appeared above an army of Picts and Scots that inspired them to victory against an army of Angles and Saxons. The successful restoration has secured the building for the future with extensive exterior repairs carried out by specialists using traditional techniques, and the restoration renewal project will see a new accessible pathway with an interpretive timeline telling the history and adoption of Scotland's national flag from 834 AD to the present. Another new feature of the renovations is landscaping and engraved paving around the Saltire Memorial that tells the story of St Andrews and Scots societies across the globe. Megan Leishman, 
Grants Manager at Historics Environment Scotland, HES, said, HES are delighted to have been able to support the Scottish Flag Trust in their repair of the Hepburn Ducat and hope that many more people will be able to visit and enjoy this important national site for years to come. David Williamson, Chair of the Scottish Flag Trust, said, This has been a major project and great to see the building restored and looking its best. With the building secure, we hope the public will get behind our funding drive at saltire.scot to radically improve the birthplace of Scotland's flag. That article was by Ninian Wilson. Recorded from the National on the 28th of June 2022. From the Culture section. Recorded by Amy. Scammers said to be preparing to target millions as travel pressures intensify. By Jane McLeod. Scots have been warned to be vigilant as online scammers prepare to target millions of people, according to a report by police, security and banking experts. Fraudsters are focusing on holidays, tickets for major sporting and music events, using unsolicited emails to catch out web users, according to Police Scotland. The Scottish Business Resilience Centre, SBRC, and the Royal Bank of Scotland. The three organisations have released a new advice guide called The Little Book of Big Scams to help Scots avoid being hit by the latest swindles. It warns about the 19 common scams to look out for and gives Scots practical guidance on how to spot them and what to do if you or someone you know falls victim to one. It comes as online fraud and scams in Scotland soar, with an increase of over 69% since 2011-2012, statistics from the Scottish Government show. Assistant Chief Constable Gary Ritchie of Police Scotland said, New scams are constantly emerging, so it's no wonder that we see businesses and individuals fall into a trap. Prevention and education are key, so this guide is packed full of practical advice. The impact can be emotional as well as financial, so I urge everyone to download and share the guide with family and friends so they know what to do and who to call on if they become a victim of fraud this summer. The top three scams come as people look to book breaks away or events following the coronavirus lockdowns. Online scammers are exploiting the summer pressures facing the travel industry, coupled with the desire for Scots to seek a sunshine break. The advice book will help people recognise how to spot offers that are too good to be true and avoid travel services that do not exist, experts said. The guide also urges those seeking tickets to sports and music events to buy from official promoters as swindlers look to capitalise on a range of big events over the summer months. Jude McCory, chief executive of the SBRC, said... The travel and tourism sectors are still recovering from the pandemic, evidenced by what we have seen recently with delays and cancellations due to staffing issues. Scammers seek to take advantage of would-be travellers who have been left high and dry and are seeking fast solutions. This guide gives people the tools to tackle these scammers head-on and so lead to fewer fraud victims. The guide, available to download on the SBRC website, also covers online and cash point fraud, door-to-door scams and romance and dating fraud. That article was by Jane McLeod. The National Politics on Wednesday the 29th of June. Anger sparked over Michael Gove hosting Ireland's Forum meeting on Orkney. An article written by Ninian Wilson. A backlash has been sparked over Michael Gove's decision to host the first of the UK government's Ireland Forum meetings on Orkney. The meeting has been set up by levelling up Secretary Michael Gove and looks to bring communities together and give our islands a stronger voice. Mr Gove will chair the meeting in September with representatives from island communities from Scotland, England, Northern Ireland and Wales invited. 
Devolved administrations will also be given a role in the forum, with ministers from Edinburgh, Cardiff and Belfast invited. However, the meeting has not been welcomed by Western Isles MP Angus McNeil. Mr McNeil has said it's cash that's required, not forums, and that levelling up investment pales in comparison to what was received from the EU. He commented, Mr Gove is introducing an island's forum at a time when his levelling up fund is delivering less than a third per year of what the European Rural Development Fund used to deliver. Before forums, we need the cash. Levelling up is clearly not doing what it should be doing, therefore restore the money so any talking committee can have power. Mr Gove had previously prompted the ire of Scottish island communities when back in March his department removed Shetland from its map of its digital advert series. This came after the Scottish Government's 2018 ban on public bodies putting Shetland in a box on maps and moving it closer to the mainland, which reportedly annoyed locals. However, Mr Gove's department had removed Shetland from their ad completely. Commenting at the time of the gaffe, Emma Roddick, SNP MSP for the Highlands and Islands region, said they've completely ignored the Highlands and Islands in their levelling up scheme, which seems to be more about directing money into Tory marginals. Commenting on the September meeting, Mr Gove said, Island communities contribute a huge amount to the UK and often face common challenges. Our new Islands Forum will bring communities together and give our islands a stronger voice. Whether it's the requirement for better transport connectivity or opportunities for economic development, I want to hear directly from island communities across the UK what they need to unlock their full potential. The UK government's goal is to unite and level up our whole United Kingdom, from Shetland to the Scilly Isles. This new forum will make sure that our islands are placed right at the heart of our levelling up mission. An article written by Ninian Wilson. The National News on Wednesday the 29th of June. Ferry disruption leads to all-time critical situation. An article written by Laura Webster, News and Features Editor. Disrupted and unreliable ferry services have caused an all-time critical situation, representatives of Scotland's island communities have told MSPs. The community representatives vented their fury over poor ferry provision and the appalling impact it has on island life. The Scottish Parliament's Net Zero Energy and Transport Committee conducted an inquiry into ferry services yesterday morning. Calmac's ageing fleet of vessels have caused problems across the ferry network as they're withdrawn for maintenance or repairs. Sam Bourne, chairman of the Arran Ferry Action Group, said unreliable ferries had led to difficulties in accessing the mainland. He said it really can't be overstated how many and varied the impacts are. Mr Bourne said delays with the new ferries built at Ferguson are disastrous and cause knock-on effects for further ferry building. Gary McLean of the Isla Community Council Ferry Committee noted that the ferry Hebridean Isles was currently out of service due to an engine problem. He said, if any cog breaks down, it has a disproportionate impact on everyone else. For us, it seems to be the ferries most often. Margaret Morrison, chair of the Harris Transport Forum, said islanders were at an impasse with CalMac. She said, I've never seen such anxiety among the population. This has reached an all-time critical situation. I feel that the Western Isles are really at the point of almost extinction of our businesses. 
Joe Reed, chair of the Mull and Iona Ferry Committee, said the ferry service adds to the cost of life, it deteriorates the quality of life. An article written by Laura Webster. The National News on Wednesday the 29th of June. Major success as Scots Gaelic speakers double. An article written by Guy Stewart. The number of Scots who can speak some Gaelic has doubled from 15% in 2012 to 30%, the latest Scottish Social Attitude Survey has found. Bordner Gaelic, the principal body in Scotland responsible for promoting Gaelic development, has hailed the survey as a major success for the language, with findings showing significant support and awareness throughout the country. More than half of the people, 56%, surveyed by Scottish Social Attitudes, would also like to see the number of Gaelic speakers increase. Young people, those with a greater knowledge of Gaelic and those who've experienced greater exposure to the language were key to its growth. The survey shows that those who came in contact with Gaelic are more likely to hold positive views. More than half of those surveyed, 55%, believe that all children in Scotland between 5 and 15 should be taught Gaelic in school, a major rise from 38% in 2020. Mary McInnes, chair at Bordner Gaelic, said, We welcome this latest report from the Scottish Social Attitudes Survey. These results are excellent news and show the widespread support for Gaelic, which bodes well for its future. The rise in the usage of Gaelic is vital to preserving and growing the language for years to come, and we'll continue to work tirelessly to provide support and solutions to help continue this growth. Education Minister Shirley-Anne Somerville said, The rise in people speaking some Gaelic and support for its continued increase shows this government's commitment to promote and develop the language is having a meaningful impact. An article written by Guy Stewart. The National Politics on Wednesday the 29th of June Malcolm Rifkind talks down Little Scotland An article written by Ninian Wilson A former Scotland secretary has belittled the country, saying it would be in a very lonely place after gaining independence. The comments follow the First Minister Nicola Sturgeon setting out her roadmap to an independence referendum in Holyrood on Tuesday, declaring a date of October the 19th next year. The bill to set the vote in motion has been referred by the Lord Advocate to the Supreme Court. Miss Sturgeon's announcement has prompted both celebration and outrage across the political spectrum in Scotland. And former Cabinet Minister Sir Malcolm Rifkind spoke out against Miss Sturgeon's plan on BBC Radio 4, referencing Scotland's population as he talked down the country. He said... Now that the United Kingdom is not in the EU, if Scotland breaks away, first of all, it will neither be in the United Kingdom internal market nor the European internal market. It would take them years to be accepted as a member of either, so Scotland, little Scotland with five million people, my country of birth, would be in a very, very lonely place, neither able to have a free market with the rest of the UK nor with the European Union, at least for a good number of years. He also described Miss Sturgeon's plan for a second referendum on Scottish independence as a neverendum, as he made the case against it. He said, She has a mandate to ask for a referendum. She doesn't have a mandate to deserve a referendum. You don't have referendums in countries every few years until the side that wants independence hope they might one day win. That's what's called a neverendum, not a referendum. 
Mr Rifkin's political career includes being caught up in a scandal after he was recorded offering access and influence for cash by Channel 4's dispatches. Reporters, posing as Chinese investors, filmed him alongside Jack Straw as the two high-ranking former foreign secretaries were asked about a supposed board vacancy. They were both cleared of wrongdoing after the parliamentary watchdog found no breach of the rules on paid lobbying. An article written by Ninian Wilson. The National News on Wednesday the 29th of June. Post office workers vote to strike over pay. An article written by Rebecca Carey, SEO journalist. Post office workers have voted for a fresh one-day strike amid a dispute over pay. Communication Workers' Union, or CWU, members at more than 100 Crown post offices, which are the larger branches often sited on high streets, are set to walk out. The Crown post offices will close for a day as workers strike against a massive real-terms pay cut. The union members have rejected a pay offer that's said to be worth 3% with effect from April and a £500 lump sum since the CWU says this was well below inflation. The upcoming strike, scheduled for July the 11th, will be the third national strike by post office workers this year. CWU Assistant Secretary Andy Fury said no worker wants to be in this situation, but post office bosses can't be surprised that callous decisions are challenged by our members. This dispute is about dignity and respect for hard-working employees, essential public servants who, as key workers, provided unprecedented customer service during the pandemic. Our members feel betrayed and will not tolerate their living standards being smashed by people in charge of a public service that, due to our members' efforts, made tens of millions of pounds in annual profits. There's more than enough money for a reasonable pay rise. Implementing this pay cut is a management choice, not a necessity. A post office spokesman noted that they were disappointed in the CWU's decision, but remained hopeful that a pay agreement could be agreed soon. The spokesperson added, We want to assure our customers that the vast majority of our 11,500 branches are unaffected by the CWU decision to strike on July the 11th and will be open throughout the day. There are 114 branches, typically in city centres, that are directly managed by post office and on previous strike days over a third opened as usual. An article written by Rebecca Carey. The National News on Wednesday the 29th of June. Scottish employers and employees feel the impact of rising skill shortage. An article written by Greg Bremner. Scottish firms are concerned about skill shortages, reduced output, growth profitability and staff well-being amid the impact of Brexit, COVID-19 and the war in Ukraine. The findings were revealed in the Open University's Business Barometer 2022 that surveyed 1,300 employers in partnership with the British Chambers of Commerce and found that 84% of Scottish organisations are concerned about skill shortages, reduced output, growth profitability and staff well-being. In last year's report, skill shortages were identified by 62% of employers. This year, it's up to 70%, and many employers will increase investment in staff training to tackle the knock-on effect on staff morale, well-being and increased workload on other staff. David Allen, Senior Partnerships Manager at the Open University in Scotland, said... Critically, staff in Scotland seem to be under more pressure than staff elsewhere in the UK as the skills shortage increases workload and harms employee well-being. 
Many of the reasons for the skill shortage in Scotland are historic, but COVID-19, Brexit, the war in Ukraine and rising costs are contributing to the problem as the smaller pool of labour demands higher wages and different working conditions to those that were the norm pre-pandemic. Russell Borthwick, chief executive of Aberdeen and Grampian Chamber of Commerce, said by 2030, a fifth of Scotland's population will be of retirement age, and by 2050, this will be one quarter, while population growth since 1970 is only 5%, well behind peer nations. As we attempt to recover from the pandemic and grapple with the impact of geopolitical events, these worrying statistics, together with the results of this survey, confirm that labour and skill shortages are worsening, acting as a dangerous drag on economic recovery and growth. Workforce and skills planning has never been more important, and it's vital that policymakers, employers, our education system and training providers work meaningfully together to ensure our businesses have access to the people and skills needed to achieve our economic potential. An article written by Greg Bremner. The National News on Wednesday the 29th of June. Scottish Government review of minimum unit pricing for alcohol now underway. An article written by Steph Braun, multimedia political journalist. A review is now underway on minimum unit pricing for alcohol in Scotland after it was delayed by the pandemic. Scotland became the first country in the world to bring in minimum unit pricing for alcohol in May 2018, with it currently fixed by the Scottish Government at 50 pence per unit. It was brought in in a bid to save lives and reduce hospital admissions. While the move has helped reduce alcohol sales to their lowest since records began, Scots are still drinking almost a third more than the low-risk drinking guidelines of 14 units per adult per week. With inflation continuing to rise, there are calls for the 50 pence per unit limits to be hiked to ensure the desired effect is not subsumed by soaring living costs. Charity Alcohol Focus Scotland wants to see minimum unit pricing uprated to at least 65 pence to ensure it keeps pace with inflation, and Chief Executive Alison Douglas said it should be index-linked going forward. Public Health Minister Marie Todd announced in Parliament yesterday that a review of the unit pricing is now underway and should be completed by the end of next year. She said the introduction of minimum unit pricing, or MUP, for alcohol in Scotland has helped reduce alcohol sales to their lowest since records began. I'm encouraged by this downward trend in alcohol consumption. However, Scots are still drinking almost 30% more than the low-risk drinking guidelines of 14 units per adult per week. Ms Todd added, a review of the current level of 50 pence per unit was delayed by the pandemic. This extensive exercise is now underway, and I can confirm it will be completed in late 2023. It's intended that any new price would come into effect from May 1, 2024, subject to parliamentary scrutiny and approval. Research showing that sales of alcohol in Scotland fell by almost 8% after introduction of minimum pricing was hailed as powerful real-world evidence of the success of the policy last month. The research also found that alcohol sales in Scotland fell by 7.7% after the policy was brought in, when compared with the northeast of England. Wales, which introduced minimum pricing almost two years after Scotland in March last year, saw an 8.6% decrease in sales when compared with the west of England. 
The research, led by Newcastle University and published in The Lancet Public Health, found for both Scotland and Wales, reductions in overall purchases of alcohol were largely restricted to households that bought the most alcohol. It concluded that MUP is an effective alcohol policy option to reduce off-trade purchases of alcohol and should be widely considered. Ms Todd has also previously said she found the current levels of alcohol promotion deeply troubling and wants to reduce the attractiveness of booze. She said a consultation on a number of proposals to limit alcohol advertising in Scotland would take place in the autumn. However, key powers over television and radio remain in the hands of the UK government. An article written by Steph Braun. The National Politics on Wednesday the 29th of June. Scottish Government to be handed emergency Covid powers permanently. An article written by Gregor Young. Some emergency coronavirus powers are to become permanent in Scotland after MSPs passed legislation at Holyrood. The Coronavirus Recovery and Reform Scotland Bill was backed in Parliament by 66 votes to 52 on Tuesday night. The legislation will give the Scottish Government the ability to impose lockdown restrictions, allow court hearings to take place remotely and restrict access to schools in the event of any future public health emergencies, with opposition MSPs branding it a power grab. John Swinney told the Chamber that in response to concerns expressed over the move, an explanation will be required as to why regulations would need to be introduced urgently and an expiry date set for instances where there is no time limit. So-called Henry VIII's powers in the legislation will be subject to parliamentary approval, he added. The Covid Recovery Secretary said, In all of these changes, the government has been listening to the concerns expressed by the external stakeholders and by members of parliament to ensure that we satisfy the objective of ensuring our statute book is updated to have the necessary powers to deal with the pandemic. Use of such powers will be undertaken with an appropriate level of scrutiny from MSPs, he said. Murdo Fraser of the Scottish Conservatives said there were aspects of the bill that his party would have been happy to support had they been brought forward in another form. But too much in this bill to us was simply not necessary at this stage, and it does represent a power grab on the part of Scottish ministers, he said. The Covid Recovery Committee heard in evidence at our consultation just how much concern there was from stakeholders over a lot of what was proposed in this legislation. The committee survey had nearly 4,000 responses, which I think may well be unprecedented, with as many as 90% of people who responded expressing concern about what is proposed in this bill. Mr Fraser said such feedback proved there is no broad consensus in support of the bill. Labour's Jackie Bailey complained that the legislation, which she branded a Frankenstein-like bill, will see powers handed over to government ministers. The Scottish Labour deputy leader added that concessions by the government to address concerns simply don't go far enough. Ms Bailey said the executive will still have far-reaching powers which will potentially lead to ministers making rushed, ad hoc decisions without the benefit of the appropriate level of scrutiny. This bill will not in and of itself lead to a better response to a future pandemic and would diminish scrutiny and accountability. Let's be clear as to what ministers are attempting to do today. They're wrapping up a plethora of issues into one Frankenstein-like bill, which is wholly unjustifiable. There are many individual provisions that Labour supports, but the government has deliberately wrapped all these up in a bill that hands sweeping powers to ministers. 
The Lib Dems also criticised the government's approach, with Beatrice Wishart describing it as an unprecedented and unsavoury power grab by the Scottish government. She said, with this legislation, the government is seeking to retain powers that they solemnly promised that they would return as soon as possible. An article written by Gregor Young. The National, June 30. Ian Blackford in feisty Indy Ref 2 row with Dominic Raab. Report by Angus Coffrin. Ian Blackford has declared there is no case for the union as he insisted a referendum will take place next year. The SNP Westminster leader invited Deputy Prime Minister Dominic Raab, standing in for Boris Johnson at PMQs as he attends a NATO summit in Madrid, to present his argument for Scotland to stay in the Union. It comes after Nicola Sturgeon unveiled her route map to a second independence referendum, which she intends to hold on October 19, 2023, pending the result of a Supreme Court battle with the UK government. If that bid is rejected, she says the Scottish government will consider the next general election a de facto independence referendum. A majority of votes for pro-yes parties would be considered a mandate to begin negotiations to leave the Union, according to Holyrood ministers. Insisting the referendum will go ahead next year, Blackford told the Commons, Scotland has already paid the price for not being independent. Westminster governments we did not vote for, imposing policies we do not support, breaking international law, dragging Scotland through the damaging Brexit we didn't vote for, and delivering deep austerity cuts. Contrast that with our European neighbours, who have greater income equality, lower poverty rates, and higher productivity. Why not Scotland? In the weeks and months ahead, we will make the positive case for independence. Will the opposition, if they can, make the case for continued Westminster rule? Rab, seemingly taking a swipe at Blackford, began by saying, it's always good to see him in his place. It came after calls for the SNP Westminster to resign over the Patrick Grady row. He told the SNP MP, It's not the right time for another referendum. Given the challenges that we face as one UK, I think actually the people of Scotland want their two governments to work together, and we are keen, willing and enthusiastic to do so. In response, Blackford announced, there is no case for the Union, as we've just heard from the Deputy Prime Minister. The harsh reality is that the Tories might fear democratic debate, but they don't have the right to block Scottish democracy. He pointed out that Scottish Tory leader Douglas Ross had told voters ahead of the 2021 Holyrood election that a vote for the SNP is a vote for Indy Ref 2. Blackford told MPs, You won't often hear me say this, but I agree with him and so do the Scottish people. 
Scottish democracy will not be prisoner of any Prime Minister in this place. So why is the UK government scared of democracy? Or is it simply because they have run out of ideas to defend the failing Westminster system? Rab again refused to give credence to the notion of a second referendum. The Justice Secretary said, I think he's rather airbrushing history with that long soliloquy. He insisted Scotland is facing a huge tax burden imposed by the SNP and concerns over educational standards. And he added, I think the people of Scotland expect their government in Holyrood and in Westminster to work together to tackle the issues facing them in their day-to-day -day lives. Report by Angus Cochrane The National, June 30 Scotland provides £65 million in military aid to Ukraine. Report by Laura Webster the Scottish Government has pledged £65 million to the war effort in Ukraine. The contribution will make up part of the £1 billion in funding the UK Government is providing to the Ukrainian military for equipment including air defence systems and kit for soldiers. It follows the £4 million in financial aid sent to Ukraine by the Scottish Government for humanitarian assistance and a further £3 million for medical supplies. Finance Secretary Kate Forbes said the Scottish Government condemns Russia's unprovoked illegal invasion of Ukraine. And she added, Scotland stands for democracy, human rights and the rule of law at home and abroad. We have become a place of refuge and sanctuary for displaced people from Ukraine and have done all we can to get help for those fleeing the country to escape the violence. This further funding is to assist Ukrainian armed forces to fight Russian aggression and the unspeakable brutality being perpetrated. We have agreed to provide funding on this occasion given the clear need to maximise the international effort to support Ukraine. However, we are clear that this must not be seen as any kind of precedent which leads to devolved budgets being used to help pay for clearly reserved policy areas. The UK's new funding is a significant increase on this £1.3 billion of military assistance already provided, with Boris Johnson claiming British support was transforming Ukraine's defences against the Russian onslaught. Liz Truss said it was the government's absolute priority to help Ukraine win the war. The promise of extra military support comes after Ukraine's president Volodymyr Zelensky urged NATO leaders to do more to help his country resist Putin's invasion. At the NATO summit in Madrid, which ends today, the UK promised funding for capabilities including air defence systems, drones and electronic warfare equipment. The Foreign Secretary said, I've not met Vladimir Putin 
I don't know the motivation for carrying out this appalling war. All I know is that we have to make it our absolute priority to stop this war and to push Vladimir Putin and the Russian troops out of Ukraine. The UK is counting its support for Ukraine within its defence spending, taking its commitment to around 2.3% of gross domestic product. Johnson told reporters in Madrid on Wednesday that the UK has massively increased its defence budget. The Prime Minister said, I think when you look at what the UK is doing right now, we're having a bigger defence budget. It's been increased massively, the biggest increase since the end of the Cold War, £24 billion more. In 2021, we were the third biggest defence spender in the world. Actually, today, we're at 2.3% of gross domestic product. So we're above the 2% commitment already. And if you look at the commitments the UK is making, whether it's to the future combat aircraft system or to the submarine partnership with Australia and America, these are long-term spending commitments. What we are trying to do today here in NATO, in addition to everything else, is get our partners to recognise that everybody wants to step up to the plate, and they are. And you've seen the massive commitments by the Germans, increased expenditure around the table. The level of spending on defence has been the source of a row between number 10 and the military, with calls for extra funding for UK forces to meet increased demands as a result of the instability caused by Russia's actions. Defence Secretary Ben Wallace told reporters in Madrid, to be fair, number 10 does say, if you include the extra Ukrainian spend, they have put a sort of caveat to that. Because of course it isn't core defence spending. I mean, it is not my core budget. It doesn't buy me any more planes, tanks or ships. It is obliquely helping Britain's defence, because we are helping Ukraine. Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy said plans to cut the size of the British Army to 73,000 troops should be abandoned because of the war. And he said, with threats increasing, the government risks leaving our armed forces without the equipment and troops they need to fight and fulfil our NATO obligations. Report by Laura Webster The National June 30. Edinburgh Labour suspend two councillors over their opposition to a Tory deal. Report by Hamish Morrison. Two Scottish Labour councillors who defied orders to back a grubby deal with the Tories to keep the SNP out of power have been suspended from the party. Ross Mackenzie and Katrina Fasenda have been temporarily excluded from Edinburgh Labour for rejecting the deal with Conservative and Lib Dem councillors. The SNP said the move shows Anna Sarwar's opposition to the Tories is complete dribble. Group leader Kami Day 
struck a deal with the Tories and Lib Dems to keep Labour in power in the capital by installing some of their councillors in positions of power instead of bargaining with his former coalition partners, the SNP. We reported previously how Labour secured a minority administration in Edinburgh, despite having only 13 councillors to the SNP's 19, and how more Lib Dems voted for Day's group than his own councillors because of Mackenzie and Facenda's abstentions. The Tories came in last place in the city, with just nine councillors, down by 50% on their 2017 result, but were awarded paid roles on the council in exchange for supporting Labour. Mackenzie and Facenda have been suspended for eight weeks, meaning they will be excluded from group meetings and activities during this period and will be forced to temporarily move offices. The Edinburgh Evening News reports Day as saying, It is disappointing the two members chose to break the group whip, which is how we're all elected and abide by democratic decisions. The internal process has been finalised and the group's decision is to suspend them for eight weeks with immediate effect. In a joint statement, the two councillors said, We respect the outcome of the disciplinary process, which has been conducted in good faith, but collective responsibility requires internal democracy and accountability. We will continue to fight for a Labour Party that respects the views of its members and affiliates. It's now up to those in leadership positions to show how this Labour minority administration can make a positive difference. Gordon MacDonald, the SNP MSP for Edinburgh Pentland said, All Anna Sarwar's talk about standing up to Boris Johnson is being shown to be more hollow by the day, as his party stands shoulder to shoulder with the Tories at every opportunity whether it be in council chambers, the fight for fair pay for workers, or standing in the way of Scottish democracy. People across Edinburgh sent the Tories a clear message less than two months ago, but Labour have chosen to ignore it and punish those who have chosen to respect it. All Anas Sarwar's talk of opposing the toxic Tories is complete drivel, and people across Scotland should be in absolutely no doubt that the only way to escape the devastating consequences of Westminster control is for Scotland to become a normal, independent country. Figures within Scottish Labour have also been critical of the move, and others like it across the country, with the North East MSP Mercedes Villalba saying, no Labour representative worth the name would ever put Tories in power. Scottish Labour have been approached for comment. Report by Hamish Morrison The National, June 30 Scottish Independence Yes and no sides, neck and neck Poll fines Report by Angus Cochrane Yes and no, 
are practically neck and neck as the Scottish Government gears up for a referendum in 2023. However, the Savanta Comres poll for the Scotsman found a majority of voters are opposed to holding the ballot next year. Nicola Sturgeon announced plans this week for a second vote on the issue on October 19, 2023, with the UK government refusing to grant consent for such a ballot to be held. The First Minister is asking the UK Supreme Court judges to rule if Holyrood can hold a referendum without the backing of Westminster. If the court rules the ballot cannot take place, the next Westminster election will be considered by the Scottish Government to be a de facto referendum on Scotland's place in the UK. Some 44% of those questioned by Savanta Comres support independence, while 46% are opposed, both down 1% from a survey last month, while 10% were undecided, which was up 3 percentage points. When undecided voters were removed, 49% said they would vote yes, while 51% said they would vote no which was unchanged. Savanta Comres Associate Director Chris Hopkins told the Scotsman that the results on the question of whether Scotland should be an independent country are practically neck and neck. He said, support for a second independence referendum without a Section 30 is driven by those in the Yes camp. Opposition comes almost wholly from the no camp. Four in five yes voters say the case for independence is stronger now than in 2014. A majority of no voters say it's weaker now. The battle lines that were drawn in 2014 are all too familiar and Nicola Sturgeon's defiance to hold a referendum at almost any cost just deepens this divide. The polling firm interviewed 1,029 Scottish adults aged 16 or over online between June 23 and 28. They were also asked about their Westminster voting intentions. It comes as Holyrood ministers say in the event of the next general election being considered a de facto referendum pro-independence parties would have to win more than 50% of the popular vote to secure a mandate to begin negotiations to leave the Union. Some 45% of respondents said they would back the SNP. No change from the 2019 general election. A further 25% plus 6 opted for Labour while Conservative support plummeted by 7 points to 18%. The Lib Dems were backed by 8% minus 2. At the 2019 general election, while the SNP won 45% of the votes cast in Scotland, the pro-independence Greens also won a further 1%. In their best ever UK election showing in 2015, 
the SNP won 50% of Scottish votes. Report by Angus Cochran. And that was this week's The National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.